Hello, and welcome to the Incorporating Science podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with scientific entrepreneurs discovering how they navigate the crossroads of research and innovation, hosted by Kedar Kakare and myself, Alec Santiago. Today, our guest is Sam Arbisman, who is a scientist in residence at Lux Capital. And I'm just going to read a quick bio here, which, uh, as I said, Lux was kind enough to put together for me <laughs> on their website. So Sam is a complexity scientist. He's passionate about bringing together seemingly unrelated ideas from science and technology. He works with companies and founders that recognize the future happens at these boundaries in areas like open science, massive technological complexity, artificial intelligence, and infusing computation into everything from biology to manufacturing. Sam's research examines areas as scientific such as scientific discovery and network science, and his writings appear in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and Wired. Sam has authored two books, one, Overcomplicated, Technology of the Limits of Comprehension, and the other, The Half-Life of Facts. He is a senior fellow at the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado, a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, and visiting scholar in philosophy at the University of Kansas, and is also an advisor to Authoria, collaborative writing software for academia, which I can say is much needed. Uh, prior to this, Sam was a senior scholar in research and policy at the Kauffman Foundation, and a research fellow in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard. He has a PhD in computational biology from Cornell and did his undergraduate at Brandeis University. Um, just a couple of things I'm going to add to that. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's really awesome to have Sam on today because his interests are super wide-ranging and has actually written papers on topics all the way from super linear scaling for innovation in cities to a Monte Carlo approach for Joe DiMaggio and streaks in baseball. And in his own words from his website, he's obsessed with promoting generalist thinking in our age of specialization, seeing the, our most hopeful future in unexpected collisions between disparate ideas. Okay, Sam, so that's, I mean, that's a really impressive background. I think the first thing that, that I'd like to know, and hopefully others will, will be interested in, is how do you find the time to do all of this? Uh, well, I'm not doing all of it simultaneously, first of all, so <laughs> thank you for the very kind introduction, but yeah, no, um, so I, I, I would say in my, in my career, and I've, I'm interested in many, many different things, but I would say I go through certain like waves of interest. So, mm -hmm. so part of that is, uh, at, at different points in my career and my research, I've been in, more interested in certain areas than in others. And so that's kind of allowed me to kind of play in many, many different fields, um, which is great. Um, uh, yeah, and so and should I kind of give a little sense of kind of how I've gotten to where I am? Would, would that be useful? Yeah, that would be great. Um, I think okay. it's interesting. You've, you've done so many different things. Um, yeah, maybe starting with the PhD and kind of how you got to be at a, a large venture capital firm. Sure. Yeah, so I, I, so I uh, uh, got my PhD in computational biology from Cornell. Um, I was actually, I think, one of the first people joining that program, uh, and so it was still pretty flexible at the time. Uh, and so even though, so I actually joined when uh, when I joined, I was very interested in computational mathematical modeling of evolutionary biology. So I was very interested in kind of understanding evolutionary system and evolutionary change, and also uh, things 
which relate to bioinformatics and kind of computational genetics and all, all these different sort of areas. And when I joined the PhD program, my first two years were also, par I, I was part of this uh, NSF IGERT fellowship, uh, which uh, I don't believe it exists anymore. Cornell, it was like sort of like a time-limited kind of thing for, they got a grant for five years or whatever it was. Um, but it was it was this program in nonlinear and dynamical systems. And it, and it drew people from all different domains. Uh, there were I think, people in sociology, people in biology, people in physics, uh, all, all different kind of areas within kind of this, the, the, the natural sciences, the social sciences. And what we did was we spent a lot of time looking at models around big complex systems. So trying to look at uh, systems, whether or not they were in biology, technological systems, social systems, uh, anything that had sort of a large number of complex interacting components, uh, and looking at what are the fundamentally uh, similar mathematical kind of uh, models of, and like underlying components of like, and, and, and looking at, even though these systems are very, very different, what are the similarities in their behavior and their structure and kind of how they work and operate? And this got me really, really interested in this entire field of complexity science. And uh, and at a certain point in my PhD, I, I had taken all the evolutionary biology courses, was really interested in that, but I also realized I wanted to do more research in just complexity science more broadly, looking at networks of interacting components, things like that. And uh, to the credit of my uh, of my committee, they said, well, uh, you've taken all the coursework, you can kind of go do whatever you want. And so uh, I ended up doing a dissertation in a whole bunch of kind of on a whole bunch of different topics, um, ones that really had, uh, that were really only unified by the fact that I was using network science and complexity science to really understand the area. So you mentioned I looked at innovation in cities, this kind of superlinear scaling in cities. I looked at uh, how, how language is processed in the mind uh, based on like the idea of networks of, inter of similar sounding words and whether or not uh, if you just take a whole bunch of the words in a language and connect them based on whether or not they sound similar, they have a single sound separating them, uh, seeing whether or not this actually, this kind of constructed network actually has implications for how language is processed. Uh, and it turns out it does, which is really exciting stuff. Uh, and then also, and as you also mentioned, I even did some stuff on uh, uh, hitting streaks in baseball. which is, So I really kind of did a whole bunch of different things. And thankfully, my, uh, uh, my advisor was uh, willing to kind of let me indulge all of my interests, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, and then, so that so I finished the PhD in working on all these kind of crazy ideas, which was a lot of fun, but sort of unified by this idea of complexity science. Uh, and then continued on in a, in a postdoctoral fellowship. Uh, in this case, it was, uh, I, I worked, um, I was in actually the Department of Healthcare Policy in Harvard's medical school, not because I was doing anything related to medicine or healthcare, but it was because the person I was working with uh, also was highly interdisciplinary and he had a whole bunch of different affiliations and I think had the most office space in healthcare policy. And so <laughs> it was me and a physicist and there was an MD PhD in psychology and economics. It was this really incredible interdisciplinary group of people. And again, though, we were all unified by our interest in network science, kind of using network science and complexity science to uh, connect lots of different areas together that might on the surface not really be Connected. And I think this is sort of like one of the through lines of a lot of my interests, which is all these areas can be different, but in some ways they are fundamentally the same. And oftentimes they're fundamentally the same, or at least somewhat similar, based on the kind of mathematical modeling and sort of the, the mental frameworks you can use to understand them, in this case, complexity science. But it can, there, there, there can be a whole bunch of different areas 
different mental models you can use. And so when I was there, I uh, did a lot of research around understanding uh, the nature of kind of human behavior and kind of uh, trying to basically quantitative and, and computational social science. Uh, and one of the areas that I actually got more interested when I was there was around trying to quantify um, one area of social science, which is um, scientific and technological change. And so it turns out there's this long uh, history of, of, of this field, which I, I would say at least one subset of it, a pretty large subset, is known as scientometrics, which is basically the science of science, kind of quantifying science. And now people talk about this as uh, meta-science or meta-knowledge. There's a lot of amazing research being done in this field. So I, I got involved in this and began doing some research as well, kind of trying to understand the nature of scientific technological change, scientific and technological innovation. Uh, and then during this time, uh, not only was I uh, doing some research, I also began to write for uh, general audiences. I, one of the one of my passions, uh, in addition to kind of looking at how all these different fields are connected, is really trying to uh, uh, engage with the public, really trying to explain ideas for a general audience. Um, and because I think not only can we connect lots of different ideas together, but I think a lot of these ideas and these scientific ideas and concepts should also be connected to the wider public. They should not just kind of remain in the academy. They, these these ideas should be disseminated more widely. And so I had done a little bit of um, writing for popular audiences when I was in graduate school, and I began to do a lot more during my postdoc. Um, began writing for um, uh, some newspapers and magazines, and uh, and then I actually began writing my first book, which I you mentioned, uh, The Half-Life of Facts. This book is really just, it's really about the, uh, the regularities behind how knowledge changes over time. So essentially connecting some of my academic research and academic work, as well as just other people's work in, the, in this field. I, I, I would say on a drop in this very, very large field, which is amazing to explore, um, and trying to kind of bring some of these, some of the ideas of scientometrics, as well as other kind of aspects of science and science, to a more broad audience and say, and yeah, we know intuitively that our textbooks when we were young are not necessarily up to date. Things are updated, things have become obsolete or overturned. But in fact, there are rules and regularities to how knowledge grows over time, how it changes, how it gets overturned, how it spreads from person to person, how error gets rooted out. Uh, there are rules behind all of this. And, and if we can begin to internalize a lot of these kinds of bits and pieces of knowledge, we will have a better understanding not only of how to read uh, the scientific literature or how to just read science journalism, but also even how we think about science more broadly. And so, because oftentimes people uh, when they see that, oh yeah, this, this food I thought was good for me is now, now there's new paper saying that it's, that it's not good for me. People can be, begin to just like throw almost like the baby out with the bathwater. They say, oh, like people, we don't really know we, what we know. And, uh, and therefore I'm, I'm just going to kind of ignore this, this entire amount of churn within science. But, and that's really not how we should think about it. And one of the, one of the reasons we're seeing all that churn is because scientists work at the frontier, which is where we know the least, but where the most exciting things are happening. And so truly, and scientists, sort of the, like, the ideal scientists should, should actually revel in this idea of like, we are actually learning new things and overturning new things at that frontier, which is not to say that I, we don't know anything. We clearly know quite a bit, and that is the core of science. That is the things that are really, really well known and the things that often make it into the textbooks that, that are not overturned. And the vast majority of things are not overturned. Um, but, I, but I think we need to kind of imbibe that sort of scientific mindset for our for how we think about knowledge more more broadly, and actually, it was, it was brought home to me by um, uh, one of my uh, one of my one of my professors. I went back I went back to to give a talk uh, 
at Cornell in the applied math department. This is after I had already graduated and I was meeting with him. And he, was, he told me this, and I think at the time I was working on uh, the Half-Life Facts. And so he told me this great story, which was he had been teaching a course and he came in on like a Tuesday and gave a lecture. Uh, the next day, he actually wrote a paper that invalidated what he had, what he had told the class the day before. And, uh, and so then he went, went back to the class on Thursday and he said, remember what I told you on Tuesday? It's wrong. And if that <laughs> bothers you, you need to get out of science. And so it was this idea of like science is always in draft form and we need to recognize that. And so that was kind of one, the, um, uh, and so anyway, that was a, a long way of saying that that was sort of my, um, the, the first book that I wrote is kind of Half-Life Facts, which actually I didn't finish until after I had already finished my postdoc. Um, but uh, it was kind of a long way of saying this is one of the areas that I was very interested in, not only in working on in terms of basic research, but also in terms of trying to discuss this with a broader audience. Because I really think trying to understand how science operates is a very important, almost like like mental like, like mental framework that, that each of us need, whether or not we're scientists. And so um, I began getting interested in that, uh, working on that, began working on the book when I was my, during my postdoc. Uh, and then, uh, as I neared the end of my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, I realized that uh, I was not going to be a good fit for kind of traditional academia. Um, I guess I would say for for two main reasons. One is um, my research was extremely interdisciplinary, so I was kind of cutting across many many different domains. And and oftentimes, while you can do some of that in the academy. Uh, you still need to have some sort of academic home, like some sort of departmental home. And given that my research was kind of all over the place, it was going to be very difficult for me to find sort of an academic home. Coupled with the fact that I was also doing a lot of this uh, popular writing, which I guess is like best case scenario kind of tolerated uh, within, uh, within academia. And certainly while I was trying to get, if I were trying to get tenure, um, it would be kind of hard to balance all these different kinds of things. And, and I knew because of all my different areas of research, I, I wasn't necessarily going to be a good fit. And so very fortuitously, uh, the uh, the Kaufman Foundation, so the, the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, which was, uh, it's a um, very large foundation uh, based in Kansas City and devoted to kind of promoting entrepreneurship, innovation, education. Um, at the time, they uh, they were building this almost like in-house think tank, uh, sort of Department of Research and Policy. Um, and they uh, had stumbled across some of the, the work that I had done. And they reached out to me initially just, I think, to kind of, join some little conference that they organized. Um, but then eventually I was talking to them and they said that, that they would love for me to kind of join this, uh, basically this in-house think tank. And, uh, and I thought this sounded like an amazing opportunity where they were, they were really just interested in me thinking about uh, the nature of scientific technological change, the nature of innovation more broadly. And they were open to me uh, conducting my research and writing uh, in academic spheres, so like writing for journal articles, but also writing for more popular audiences. They were very agnostic as to what kind of, what form my output would take as long as it was sort of in these kind of very, very broad areas. Uh, and I thought it sounded like an amazing opportunity. And uh, I joined the Coffin Foundation. I was there for several years, um, finished my first book. So I finished the Half-Life of Facts, uh, began a lot of research about um, uh, and thinking about innovation, um, scientific and technological change, kind of the stuff related to half-life effects, but also began thinking about um, things related to uh, why certain startup or why certain cities are more entrepreneurial than others, and kind of trying to understand startup ecosystems. Um, and then during this time, also just began to become much more familiar with the world of startups and, uh, and venture capital, and kind of that entire ecosystem more broadly. And so it's kind of kind of strange that I was in Boston 
entirely steeped in the world of academia, which has a much, much larger startup world and almost entirely disconnected from that. And it wasn't until I came to Kansas City, which has a which has a much smaller startup ecosystem, that I began to kind of learn about that world much more broadly. And found it super fascinating. Um, and then during this time, I also began working on my second book, uh, Overcomplicated, which was about, um, I, would, I would say both books are really about how, um, almost, I would say like, like epistemic humility, sort of like trying to grapple with how we know what we know and sometimes don't always know as much as we think we know. So the first book was about changing knowledge. The second book was about uh, the massive complexity of the systems that we ourselves have built. So basically the, the massive complexity, um, in, in deep many cases, over complexity of our technological systems. Uh, and and not only are these systems more complex than many of us can understand, so like I can't understand how the iPhone in my pocket works, um, but I, but in many cases, the people who built these systems no longer fully understand them. And so we have gone to this point of incomprehensibility for our technologies, even for the people who have built these things or maintain them on a daily basis. And so the book looks at sort of like what are the forces that have led us to this point of incomprehensibility and whether or not we can actually try to still understand them, even if we can't fully understand them. And I happen to be a fairly optimistic person by nature, so I, I do think we can understand them. Uh, and so the book kind of lays that out. And so um, I began getting more involved in kind of thinking about large technological systems and kind of going back to kind of my complexity science roots, trying to think about large complex technologies, um, these large systems more broadly, but also even the, the kind of systems that are built by our, Lord, our large corporations or our governments or even our startups and trying to kind of think about how these things operate. And so I uh, worked on that, uh, began working on that when I was at the Kauffman Foundation, uh, left the Kauffman Foundation now, let's see, this is, I guess like the beginning of 2015, actually spent the first half of that year uh, working on uh, overcomplicated, getting it to uh, a point where um, I thought I could at least begin to think about something else other than the book. Um, there was still obviously a lot more work left to do. Um, the book didn't come out until over a year later. Uh, but I was uh, I spent kind of that first half of the year working on that book, and then uh, and then joined uh, Lux Capital uh, in I guess the summer of 2015. So now about four years ago, uh, a little bit more than four years ago. And, uh, and one of the reasons I, I joined Lux was, uh, and as I mentioned before, kind of, I, I have a, this passion for kind of connecting different ideas and interdisciplinary thinking and really trying to kind of understand the nature of scientific technological change and sort of the frontier of science. And uh, venture, venture capital more broadly is really devoted to kind of that, that kind of thinking. And Lux specifically is very much about, like, people use the term like deep tech or frontier tech, but really it's more... Lux, we at Lux are very interested in things that feel almost like the intersection between science fiction and science fact, where science fiction, I mean, obviously, is there's a huge realm of things that are not possible yet, but increasingly, the world of science fact is catching up to that world of science fiction, and I want to be, be there at that, at, at that very nice boundary, and, um, and Lux really was playing at that boundary, and so, uh, and, and basically, my role at Lux um, inside the title scientists in residence and really what i do is to act as connective tissue for ideas of people and so i survey this landscape of science and technology and find areas that i think we should be that we should be exploring um, on behalf of blogs um and based on that do, do a number of different things so sometimes i'm simply sourcing deals at this uh, based on the areas that i'm exploring uh sometimes i'm finding people we might want to actually build uh and construct companies around uh i'm sometimes i'm engaging with the public through writing and speaking about these areas. So I continue to do writing. 
Uh, and then I also connect scientists and technologists and other groups that are not traditionally connected to startups or, or venture to our portfolio. So what this means is that I'm kind of connecting uh, areas to our portfolio of companies and saying, like, guess what, like area X, which um, you might not even know is relevant to our to, to your startup or you might not even know exists, is actually could be could be very important to what you're building. And so I really kind of do this sort of like import-export business of ideas and people. Um, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of what I do very broadly on kind of a day-to-day basis. I'm really on a day-to-day, it's, or even almost an hour-to-hour, I'm really getting to uh, think about new ideas and, and having amazing opportunities of interacting with lots of people who are just kind of creating this future that, uh, that I really want to be a part of. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, that's sort of where a, a very kind of long circuitous path of kind of how I got from the PhD to kind of Lux, but uh, I'm happy to kind of go in more detail or discuss more various uh, kind of or drill down on various yeah. aspects of that. Yeah, that was uh, that was awesome to hear it in more detail. Um, I think it's really really amazing how you've been able to find these niches where you can do this kind of interdisciplinary scientific thinking right at the frontier um, outside of academia. Right. I think I think what I'd love to to dig into a little bit and hear a bit more about is you know it sounds like your your current position is is very wide-ranging so you're going to conferences meeting people reading papers i presume talking to the investment team at lux what is your <clears throat> what does your day-to-day really look like now and and i guess how you know I, i've definitely experienced that it's easy to find yourself in meetings and phone calls and things all day and and especially in a position like yours you probably need the space to think and and develop an opinion and thoughts about <clears throat> where the world is going. So, uh, I guess a bit of a roundabout question, but but would love to hear about what does your day to day look like, and how do you make that space to think? No, that, that, that is great, and I, I would say, and kind of to get a higher level kind of perspective, I would say one of, one of the things that I think about when, um, like in my role at Lux, and really kind of, I would say my passion more broadly, um, and and one of the things that made me realize that not only was my work more interdisciplinary than would fit in academia. But I also really, and one of the other bigger reasons, um, I would say in retrospect that I was not a fit for academia, is while I, I love to think about new ideas, and I, and I feel like my, my writing is, a, uh, is, is kind of innovative and a contribution, really my passion is being a midwife to innovation. Uh, it's kind of the way I describe like venture capital more, more broadly, but also my specific role, which is like about trying to, I, and the, the real heroes who are innovating are the people who are kind of building these companies on a daily basis and the ones that we're kind of helping. And, and, and my job, and my job really is to be a helper. And so whenever I think about like, what am I doing on my day to day, it's always, um, and sometimes I'm not always thinking about this actively, but in, I would say the ideal form, I always kind of look towards what I'm doing as, okay, how can I best be a midwife to the innovation and, and, and the best sort of best possible future that really we at Lux want to bring about. So in terms of my day to day, and so that's, that's very lofty, um, but in terms of like my day to day and what I'm doing, I would say it is a combination of I mean, reading and speaking to people. Um, and you're right. It, I, I, if I am very, I would say like reactive, I can be really just kind of brought into like lots of people emailing me and saying like, well, we just need to have meetings and things like that. And, and you're right. I could get swept up into this and caught up into it um, and really push out any of my ability to kind of think more broadly about various ideas and just kind of read, read more or about the things that I, 
I want to be thinking about. And so one of the, I would say one, one feature uh, of my position, um, is actually, so, so Lux, we have, uh, we have two offices, um, we're in New York and uh, Menlo Park in the Bay Area. Um, we're a very tight-knit group, so we do everything over email and video. And so we're really one team, but we're kind of in two different locations. Um, but I'm actually in neutral location. So I am still in Kansas City, where, where I moved out when I initially joined the Kauffman Foundation. And I would say, and so I, because of our tight-knit nature of our, our of Lux, of, of the firm, I am still really part of the flow of information and what is happening with at Lux. But because I am outside of sort of the two, I would say the two of the largest startup hubs within the United States, um, sure, I'm certainly missing the opportunity to interact with people um, in those places, but I at least have the ability to kind of make, uh, I would say, like sort of make my schedule my own in a way where, where it is far less reactive. And so I can, I basically have the luxury of thinking about the things I want to think about as opposed to the things that I think people that everyone else is talking about. And sometimes there are overlap. And I think many of the things that people are discussing about, like the certain hot topics and certain hot ideas and innovations and technologies. Um, in many cases, there is a reason they are hot is because they are actually truly exciting. But in other cases, uh, because I am not sort of in some of these bubbles, I have a little bit more freedom to kind of think about the things that I want to be thinking about and kind of chase down little ideas or kind of go through rabbit holes or kind of find areas that are more academic but are less sexy but are actually at least in my perspective truly exciting so on a day-to-day -day basis i and so i have this like running list of various topics that i'm exploring at any one point and uh on a on a regular day i might have um a handful of meetings with academics or uh, technologists about those topics to kind of learn more about them or even kind of how to best navigate the um the world in those areas so like oftentimes i might be um exploring an area that i myself am not an expert in because there's far more things than one can possibly be an expert in and so i need i need guides and and talking to people and kind of having them uh point me to additional people is really a right now probably one of the best ways to navigate a new area and so oftentimes a lot of my conversations take that form of like trying to kind of learn more about an area um have them kind of navigate and then potentially also these people might be useful for helping with a startup or a potential company that we might incubate within lux which we do from time to time um and so it's not i'm not just trying to like like squeeze people's brains for all their information i'm also trying to kind of loop them into kind of the lux family um in some other way but uh, yeah, so I would say some of it is just kind of talking to people, kind of figuring out what to navigate. And then uh, through a combination of my own research, as well as in response to what um, individual point me to, I will spend some time reading academic articles, reading other more general articles. Um, some of it I also, um, I, I try to also uh, build. So one of the other things that, that I do, I'm a very big proponent of sort of like uh, directed serendipity where I, and, I want to try to find things that I would not necessarily have sought out, um, but I but still could be important for me. At the same time, though, that can create I would say a very like it's very easy to kind of create a, a feeling of like FOMO, where it's just like oh I need to like read everything or be talking to everyone, otherwise I'm going to be uh, I'm not going to be up or I'm not I, or there, there's a chance I'm going to potentially miss something. And I think that um, that extreme is like it, it can be very harmful to one's like sanity because you 
feel like there's always more to read and there's always more to know, which I mean, there is. I actually view that as more of like an exciting thing of like, there's always more to know. Like, and that is great. Um, as opposed to like creating this overwhelming feeling of like, I will never actually see all the things that are interesting. And so one of the things I've, I've done is kind of try to um, construct little tools for myself as ways of kind of like, almost like serendipity engines, like, like these little tools for kind of helping me, um, like so basically supercharging my ability to kind of connect interesting and diverse bits and pieces of information or find certain things. Um, and so th and this can be as simple as like, so for example, I have tried, uh, tried my best to cut out uh, social media because I just find the uh, kind of cost and benefit is just not the, uh, <laughs> not, it is not the ratio that I would like. Um, at the same time though, um, so even though I've basically stopped using Twitter actively, um, I've discovered that, so there's a, there's an app uh, called Nuzzle, um, which will show you just the kind of most tweeted articles by the people you follow, which itself is also, I think, something that I don't need to follow actively. But one of the features they do, they do have, which is sort of buried, is they will send you a, they can send you like a once daily email newsletter of like the five or six most tweeted articles by the people you follow. And so I get that to me every morning. And I feel like, oh, I now have a sense of like, what are the things people are talking about without having to kind of constantly refresh or look or comb through all the different things that, that are sort of all the noise that people are talking about. And so this is kind of a way of cutting down on that, finding things that I might not necessarily have found on my own, but I can still see that. Um, another thing I might do is uh, I happen to probably own too many books. I own a lot of books. Um, but oftentimes when you kind of buy a book, you, um, you have a certain reason that you acquire a book, uh, you're looking about some certain idea, and then you kind of file it away, put it on a shelf. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you're, and unsurprisingly, your brain changes. And, and you might, if you had looked at that book with new eyes, you might actually kind of revisit and, and think about new new ideas. And so what I actually did was at one point, I um, there's this uh, free app called Libit where you can kind of use your phone to scan the the, uh, the barcodes on your books. And so I did this and now all, now the, the, the um, the database is out of date, but I have a whole I have a decent fraction of my books that have been scanned. And what I did was I kind of created a little script that will run weekly and just email me a selection of like five randomly chosen books that I should revisit with new eyes. And so it'll have like a little like it'll show the uh, the covers of the books along with the titles and say, okay, here's the books that you should be looking at. And I don't necessarily look at every single book, but it kind of sparks my brain in hopefully new ways. And so I think, and I have a number of these like number of other kind of things that I've done that are ways of kind of getting me to explore interesting areas that I might not otherwise be exploring. And so, so I would say part of my day, and this is again, a little bit long and rambly, but I'll, part of my day is spent exploring ideas that I've already kind of deemed worthy of exploration through a combination of reading or even writing out loud, like kind of like write, uh, kind of like exploring ideas out loud through writing for, the, for popular audiences um, as well as talking to people. And some of it's also trying to kind of explore new areas and kind of, uh, have these serendipitous tools um, find me things that potentially I should be looking at that I had not looked at. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a really just kind of a combination of like reading, writing, thinking, and talking to people um, and hopefully kind of using that as a sort of uh, flywheel to kind of develop new ideas and find new companies and, and, and find things that could be useful to, to the entire Lux portfolio in, uh, in lots of different ways. Yeah. Wow. That, um, that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like Thank you. a great, just like a great gig. I think there's there's a lot, a lot of things I want to dig into there. Um, first of all, I'm so glad you mentioned the app. I think you said Nuzzle. Is that right? 
Yes. Um, because you, I, I did a very similar thing. I, I kind of abstained from social media for a long time and then recently got a Twitter again, but I just, I, I like tried to use it and had the same issue. There's the cost benefit just doesn't work out, but I might have to try that out. Yeah. So, so right now what I do is I, I still like the idea of like thinking out loud. And so I, I, I publish, I, 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 I publish books obviously, but I've also, um, I publish articles, and so like, so I would say, like one of the longer form articles, uh, or like, like kind of like more like established article I did about some of these ideas that I've been developing. So one area that I've been thinking a lot about is, and I would say people call this like the no code or kind of low code uh, piece of software that allow you to kind of build software without actually programming. But there's this whole um, realm of academic research on this called end user programming. So I got I was very interested in this, and actually I've been very interested in this for a very long time. And so I wrote an article about that for. Um, one of the sections of BBC's website, um, but you can only write these kind of like like longer polished articles so frequently, um, especially if you're not a full time journalist. And so one of the things I've tried to do is also have a um, have have a, basically, I mean, which is not surprising, many people have these like email newsletters. And so I have tried to I built an email newsletter, um, and I send something out about I would say about once a month, where it's kind of like some articles I've been thinking about, some other ideas I'm kind of developing basically as a way of sparking conversation with the people that I want to engage with. And, I, and so I still think that in many ways, email is probably the best social network, um, whether or not it's one-on-one emails, one-to-many emails, things like that. And so um, through a combination of just email, um, these serendipity engines and news and, and my newsletter, I think I've been able to kind of cobble together the positive aspects of social media that I enjoyed without all of the sort of deleterious aspects yeah i really like the approach um one thing i want to i want to get back to which just really uh really resonated with me was you said uh you said i have the luxury to think about things i want to think about versus what others are thinking about so that actually reminded me of um i'm sure you're familiar with kind of the at this point famous Peter Thiel question of like, what do you believe in strongly that not a lot of other people do? But I kind of, I'd like to flip that around actually. And, and, and ask you like, because you're not in these bubbles, what is, are there any topics or technologies or, or companies even that a lot of people believe in strongly that you just think maybe aren't all they're cracked up to be? One thing so there is, uh, I guess these are sort of a, a cluster of ideas that I think are now moving more into the mainstream, but I think are um, still things that I guess people uh, for a while like didn't quite either believe in or kind of like, or I guess the opposite of like, they kind of thought the opposite. Um, so one, uh, so th- there's a, a writer, Alex Pong, um, he wrote this book called Rest which uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's called, it's basically about um, the importance of taking rest in one's work life and kind of like, like avoiding burnouts, like, like taking walks or naps or just like only working like intense cognitive work for only a few hours um, every day. And which kind of goes similar to like Cal Newport's book of like deep work. Um, he actually has a new book. Uh, so uh, Alex Pong has a new book coming out um, called, I believe it's going to be called Less, which is about, uh, the idea of potentially uh, work, like reducing one's work week or even one's like 
work day, like the number of hours in the work day. Uh, and one of the interesting things that that Alex explores is not just uh, like the kind of like the bait shop that might be on a like on a beach or, or on a dock that maybe has like shorter hours, um, but also like but companies that are kind of in the tech world that are actually trying to kind of make this work. Like they're saying, okay, we're only work four days a week, or we're going to only have I don't know, 30, uh, 30 hour work weeks or whatever it is. And these kind of very broad cultural shifts. Um, and I think that it's, it's interesting that, 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 and that pushes like that, like both his book class as well as rest, um, they kind of push against this sort of very, I would say mainstream idea within kind of the Silicon Valley world that you must be working all the time as a way, as like the, the benchmark for like potential success, which, which is not to say, I, I, it is not that uh, working very hard is sufficient to be a success, but there is this sense that working all the time and, and being kind of always on is sort of, it is necessary in order to kind of, it might not be sufficient, but it's necessary for success. And and I think this is also related to another thing that I've, I've begun seeing a, a shift in this though, which is um, in the Silicon Valley world, people are now coming to the idea of like potentially you can have uh, people can work remote, um, or you can have like a remote-only team where people are are every, everyone is working kind of wherever they are, and you can still get things done. And and there's still a lot of pushback um, and people kind of debating these kind of things. But I think there is still sort of this kind of mainstream sense that you must, especially kind of at earlier stages, you must have everyone physically present and everyone physically present all the time, and just trying to kind of like crush it all the time in order to. Be a startup success, and I think um, in many cases I mean, that has been successful. But I think that is not the only mode or, or, or path towards potential success. And I think these kind of more uh, moderated approaches, we're saying, okay, if we can be efficient, we can get our work done, we can actually have time for our bodies to recharge, we can be wherever we are, um, and still get things done. I think if those kinds of things are built into the culture of startups, not only can uh, startup thrive, but I think in many ways it can succeed and sometimes even um, beat some of these companies that have these kind of more traditional modes of success. Um, now, again, I mean, kind of the devil is in the details and you kind of have to look at a company on a case-by-case basis and making sure that the, this is really kind of deeply embedded within the culture and, and, and kind of even comes from the, the top as opposed because otherwise people, even if there's mouths, a kind of lip service paid towards some of these ideals of like working shorter, if um, the CEO is working all the time, and, and, and everyone kind of below yeah. um, feels kind of working all the time. But I do think one of the interesting things, though, is that because these ideas are still not quite in the mainstream, there's almost this like potential opportunity where, uh, so like I, I think I think of this like through the lens of venture, where there might be certain venture firms that they are going to kind of immediately dismiss outright companies that are kind of working in these sort of different modes. But if there's a firm that immediately does not dismiss this and says, well, let's actually keep an open mind and kind of look at a company on a case-by-case basis, then it's almost a competitive advantage where you're going to actually see opportunities where other people might just immediately dismiss them. And so I think, uh, and, that, and that could be me kind of living in sort of my like Midwestern slower paced bubble, which kind of, um, and so and for me, I talk to kind of people outside and then many people who are kind of in the world of Silicon Valley would immediately dismiss me and say, oh, this is just kind of um, some some guy kind of in, in, the, like, in Kansas kind of uh, like trying to kind of justify 
<laughs> some, some some things that like, like the way the, the way in which which I operate. But I do think there there are opportunities there. And so and it's not to say and kind of going back to kind of like the the, the 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 necessary but not sufficient formulation. I do think you can kind of view it the other way and say that it is not necessary to kind of operate in these modes, um, but it is not sufficient at the same time to kind of simply operate in these in these kind of alternative mindsets. You have to kind of you have to make sure you're doing it correctly. But I think we should be open to more paths to our success, especially in terms of how we build like the time and space of the cultures of startups. So, anyway, that, yeah. that, that, that is one idea I've, I've been thinking about recently. I'm actually really glad you brought that up. Um, that's, that's something I believe pretty strongly in. And I, you know, one book that really tipped the scale for me, I read it maybe about a year ago was a book called when by Daniel Pink. And he talks about, Actually, I mean, I think he calls it the science of timing, but a lot of the book talks about kind of circadian rhythms and when people have the most energy for intellectual thought versus versus creative thought versus um, peaks in testosterone for physical exercise. And so what that what I've used that book to do is kind of at least I try to structure my days accordingly so that, for example, in the mornings when I have the most mental energy, I'm I'm doing more of that analytical work and then maybe take a little break in the early afternoon and do creative work in the in the afternoon and evening. And I think that's maybe a, an intermediary between, you know, you have to be here nine to five working hard all day and let's take a day off, right? No, I, I totally agree. I think I mean, when it comes to knowledge work, you have to kind of know how you're mind and body operate and like try to kind of tailor your work towards those kind of needs and so like, it could be and, and so if you can't like like so like writing I, i'll give an example of like writing like writing beyond a few hours of a concentrated writing your brain is not going to be effective and and, and, and to say no i need to have like a nine to five writing day for some people it might work and i would be very very impressed by those individuals but for many other people it's just not possible uh, physically to kind of write that way. And so you need to have, yeah, you need to structure your day that way. And obviously there are many jobs where this does not work. So like, for example, like, like, like medical professions, like you can't just say, Oh, I'm going to kind of see patients when I feel like, especially if you're in, any, if you're in an emergency room, like you, you got to see yeah. them when they're there. And so, so it doesn't always work. Um, but I think for knowledge work, uh, there needs to be a certain amount of flexibility. And I think companies that build this in, um, not, not just into kind of like, oh, this is like into our kind of like hiring practice, but like deeply into the culture of like, okay, we want you to do your best knowledge work the way we think, the, the way you think you can do it. Um, and like allowing a certain amount of trust um, in the employee, I think is, uh, I think it can be very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Since we're kind of, we, we mentioned a couple different books. Um, what, I mean, you talked about kind of, getting the, the daily update from Twitter or uh, tools you've built for yourself like that. How do you, what do you read regularly in terms of publications or books and how do you go about finding those? Uh, that's a great question. And so in terms of like reading regularly, um, I mean, like I, I, have a, I guess it's like certain like, and why well, I, I, I receive the Wall Street Journal every morning and I, I, in print and I try to actually kind of like skim through it at least um, kind of like dipping in and out. Um, I, my particular favorite is I, I happen to the, the weekend journal, like the kind of review section and uh, other areas. Um, I would say that's far and away 
um, my favorite part of it. Um, and that actually has a lot of really amazing book, recommend, book recommendations. And that also gives mm. me ways of um, kind of like pointing out or finding books that I might not otherwise find. Um, I also happen to be, um, I, I'm, I, I run the, um, like a weekly recommendation email on behalf of Lux. Uh, and, as, and so as part of that, um, all the other uh, members of the team, um, as well as sometimes just like occasional readers, will send me recommendations of articles or books or other things that they think should be in the recommendation uh, email list, uh, or uh, sorry, weekly newsletter. Uh, and so as part of that, I, I basically have, I mean, and I get to write the newsletter, but I also then have inadvertently created a mechanism for people sending me things that they think I should find interesting. Um, I also go a little, a little bit old school and have um, an RSS feeder, or, or, or uh, sorry, I, I have, a, sorry, an RSS reader. Uh, and I have, I subscribe to like a ton of RSS feeds. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are actually quite intermittent. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's not terribly overwhelming, but that's another really good source. Um, I, uh, yeah, and then I also just, and I love kind of like talking to people who are, who might, who can, who I trust to kind of give me recommendations uh, for other books to read. Um, I'm also in a, in a group of friends in Kansas City who I'm, I'm part of a science fiction book club. And so we, um, uh, and that's also another way of getting recommendations for kind of in the, in the fictional realm. Um, yeah. And I even have um, kind of going going back to like the kind of serendipity engines. I also built this other little website called uh, Blink Microscope. So it's blinkmicroscope.com. And it's basically just a, I kind of describe it as like sort of like, Google, like, like a like, kind of like Google news alerts on like Google alerts on steroids, but it's really, it's a, um, it's a whole bunch. It's like a whole bunch of like Boolean queries around RSS feeds where you kind of like, if there's RSS feeds that have a lot of information, but you only want to see them occasionally when they mention certain things, um, that's basically what Blink Microscope is. And so it will send me, send me maximum once a, uh, an email once a day with a couple links that are in those RSS feeds that oftentimes have a lot of information, but I really just kind of want to sift through them and find and be alerted only when there's like some really weird kind of unexpected thing. And so I, I built that. Um, but yeah, in terms of, like, I guess, like reading books, I kind of nonfiction, I go through pretty broadly. Um, and I would say nonfiction, I read more nonlinearly. Very rarely do I kind of read nonfiction books front to back kind of in a very linear sort of traditional fashion. I'm kind of dipping in and out of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so oftentimes that lends itself best for like, so print books um, as opposed to eBooks. Um, I also try to read a pretty broad range of, um, of, of fiction. Um, that goes through waves as well as in terms of like whether or not I'm reading more or less. Um, same thing with nonfiction. But yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to read as broadly as possible, looking through uh like book review sections, things like that, trying to find just interesting books or just, yeah, or even just talking to the, I mean, when I talk to interesting new people, uh, like when I'm just through in the course of my, my job, sometimes they will mention books and like you just mentioned this book by, um, the book when, um, I, I just quickly wrote it down and I'm going to check it out. And so I would say that's kind of the way I do it where it's like, yeah. there's not any sort of clear path, but I, I like sort of this kind of like, um, sort of like kind of happenstance sort of, uh, random optionality sort of way of kind of uh, weaving my way through the world of books and, and reading, which is always exciting. And I always get to see new things and, and learn about new, new awesome. ideas. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I really like how you've built these, these little tools to facilitate that. Um, Thank you. Okay. So yeah, we have just, me, they're, they're, both, they're both, and like, they're both useful to, to build. Um, 
And so it, it's like I, I'm building them for specific uses, but I also view it as these are ways of kind of continuing to kind of flex my my coding and programming skills um, and making sure that I'm still kind of keeping up with certain things. Because um, I, I I I did a lot of programming in undergrad and graduate school, I guess in high school and kind of earlier. Um, but I uh, and I, I still I would say I'm firmly uh, not a I, I'm like a hobbyist or an amateur. I, I'm not a professional software developer by any means. Um, but yeah, but they're a lot of fun to build. That being said, and I mentioned kind of the no code and user programming sort of world. Um, as these tools get more and more sophisticated, I would be happy to kind of use these tools and some in some cases I have to kind of make it easier to build these these little tools um, for myself. But yeah, it's they're 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 fun little side projects which I, which I really yeah. enjoy. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so we have just a couple minutes here left, and I have two two more questions I want to ask, which are kind of uh, to totally unre unrelated, but I think just kind of hopefully fun. Um, so you, I read, have actually coined a word, um, yes. <laughs> mesofact. Could you yeah. could you first tell the audience what that word means and? How did, you, how did you end up coining it? And then also, aside from that one, so not including that, what is your favorite word? Oh, okay. That, um, those are great questions. Um, I would, so yeah, so Mesofact, and so it came about, I wrote a little um, little article uh, that actually ended up going, like, getting quite a bit of attention. I think that was kind of, it, it didn't become the core of the Half-Life Facts, but it became like one idea that I kind of developed in the Half-Life Facts. This idea of Mesofacts, which you kind of look at as like, um, when you think about information in your head, uh, there's there's often like two extremes. There's bits of information that are changing really quickly, uh, like what the stock market closed at yesterday or what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. You, we, we know these things are changing and we are we have kind of trained ourselves to constantly be looking these things up. On the other extreme are facts that change very slowly or effectively not at all. And you learn these things once and you're good to go, like uh, how many fingers there are in the human hand or... Um, how many continents there are on the planet. Uh, you don't really have to worry about kind of like constantly looking these things up over and over. But in the middle, there are these facts that I call mesofacts, facts that change at sort of the middle or meso time scale. Um, these things change on the order of um, years or, uh, or decades or kind of on the order of a human lifetime. These things, so these things change, but oftentimes we learn them the same way we learn the facts that don't ever change. So like, for example, the number of like, like, the population of the world, like the number, like, like how many billions of people we have on the world. And so I think when I was young, I learned that there were 5 billion and of course now we're well over 7 billion. Um, but oftentimes we forget that these things are changing steadily and we have to, and we're, and we're often like blindsided when someone's like, oh, guess what? There's actually like many more people in the United States or whatever it is um, than we might've realized. Uh, and so, uh, or for example, uh, like I, I grew up learning that um, dinosaurs were really these kind of like slow moving like reptilian monsters and now when you go to museums they're like almost like brightly colored fast moving chickens like they, they look totally different at least the smaller ones um where they have like so they have some feathering they're brightly colored it's very different and so and these kind of things change and but oftentimes we don't operate as if they should change and so we're just going through life blindly operating under these like half remembered facts you might have read in a magazine um that have that might be sorely out of date and so the, the meso fact is kind of sort of the exemplar for the kind of facts that um, that we have to be thinking about when we think about things and like all the aspects of the path. That's one little word that I coined. And um, I, I would not say it kind of um, caught on 
in a significant way and it's been used occasionally and kind of been mentioned in various different places, which is fun. Um, so I would say that's kind of my uh, one little contribution to kind of the world of language. Now, in terms of um, in terms of my own favorite word, I I don't know. I mean, there's so many wonderful words. I think one of the things I, I love about writing is being able to kind of find or remember the exact right word for a specific situation. Um, one word I think, one word I really enjoy um, is the word, and, and it has implications for complexity and kind of like like uh, very intricate systems, but actually comes from, I think, uh, medieval structures like castles and fortresses is the word uh, crenellation. It refers to sort of the, I guess, the, the crenellated structure of like, like, on, like one of the outside walls of, of a castle or a fortress that kind of has, like it kind of goes up and down, up and down. So you can kind of, I guess if you were a soldier, you can um, easily uh, put your crossbow through that or whatever it is um, without necessarily being hit. And so it's these kind of like in intricate ups and downs. Um, I believe I'm defining this correctly, but I also find that word really wonderful to be used, to use um, for uh, how we think about like com complex systems. Um, and I, I'm not entirely sure if I'm using it correctly, but I certainly like how it sounds. So I would say that's one yeah. word that I'm, I don't know if that would be my favorite word, but it's certainly up there in like my pantheon of words, I would say. Yeah, that's awesome. I did not know that word until now. I just looked it up while you were speaking and I do think you, you were pretty close on the definition. So I wonder, I'm glad I did well done. Um, so really the last question I wanted to ask, which is another Random one, but um, I also read that you have named an asteroid. Is that accurate? It is. And, so, yeah, yes, tell us about I named an asteroid. So I uh, this is when I was doing my postdoc. Um, oh, actually, well, I'll take a step back. When I was when I was in graduate school, that was when uh, Pluto was demoted. Um, when it was kind of like there was the, the object that was discovered, uh, Sedna, I think, um, that kind of made people have this reckoning of like, oh my God, there's a whole bunch of these kind of like. Um, trans-Neptunian objects that are kind of all in the same category as Pluto. We kind of kind of recognize um, that Pluto needs to be uh, recategorized. And so, um, and I, I I personally had kind of long felt that Pluto was kind of this odd, weird thing. And so for me, it was, I didn't have this like weird um, like emotional attachment to Pluto. And like, I think there's a fondness. I yeah, Pluto, I kind of grew up knowing nine planets. and like, now we don't. Um, but I was actually kind of gratified when Pluto was demoted. At the same time though, during all this process, I began to read about how um, astronomical objects and features um, are named, and so and so. There's a lot of like really crazy rules of like, okay, I, certain certain cr like craters on this specific object are named after famous astronomers or whatever it is. Or um, I believe like the the moons of Uranus are named after either characters from I think certain Shakespeare plays or like characters from poetry by Alexander Pope. Like, like they're super specific and weird and delightful and amazing. And so, and, and one of the things I learned though, in the course of kind of just reading all this kind of stuff was that, um, asteroids, they can be named almost anything. I mean, there's certain like specific rules. I, I don't, I don't think they can be named after current pe people who are currently alive, but and there's other, um, or like there's like issues around like trademark and fish infringement. Um, but, uh, but other than that, like other than kind of certain rules, like almost anything goes. And I began to uh, to read more about this. And when I was when I was a postdoc, I realized that I mean, there are far more asteroids than have ever been named. Um, they, all these asteroids have um, like official designations, but they don't have names. 
Um, so like I have an example of like an asteroid that does have a name. So in this case, it's actually a dwarf planet because it's the biggest asteroid is Ceres. So like that has an official name, but there are many others that just have like some string of letters and numbers or whatever it is. And so I, at this time, um, I've been reading a lot about, uh, the, the writer, the journalist George Plimpton, um, who is, I mean, he, he was known for almost like he would, he would do all these crazy experiences, have all these crazy experiences and write about them. So he like, he trained with the Detroit lions, uh, or, or the, sorry, uh, yeah, he trained with the Detroit lions and then like got to play, play as a quarterback in like some like, I think like preseason games. Um, so he actually wrote a book about this called paper lion, which is, is a, which is a lot of fun. Um, but he's not, he did all these things, other things where I think he like, he played with, he played, um, the, uh, the triangle with the uh, the New York Philharmonic and would write about his experience. And he did all these kind of crazy things. Um, and I believe he died in the early 2000s. And, and, and I felt that writing about the experience of naming an asteroid and naming it after George Plimpton would be like a very fitting thing. And so I, uh, I learned all the rules of how to actually go about naming an asteroid, uh, compose this like very formal, um, description of what the asteroid would be and like why it's being named after George Plimpton uh, and submit it to the, um, I guess, I believe it's called the Minor Planet Center, um, which is, I think, housed in one of the centers at Harvard, but I believe it's kind of independent from Harvard. Um, and uh, and then found out like several months later that uh, the asteroid, like that my submission had been approved and I got to name an asteroid after George Plimpton. And so it has some designation where like there's some, it's like, it's like some number and then Plimpton or Plimpton and some number. I forget the exact details, but uh, yeah, there is a, an asteroid after, named after George Plimpton and, I, uh, and I, I was the one to do it. And it was an amazing experience and I got to learn a lot about the naming of uh, just astronomical objects and it was yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool. I'm glad I asked that quite the story. I, I, I really appreciate how you just kind of find, find things that are interesting and go read about them and, and learn more and I guess in this case figure out that uh, that most asteroids are not named, and that you can actually name one. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, mean, I, I kind of. I, I, the world is just really, really interesting and exciting, and like, and really, for the most part, more interesting than I think most people realize. And so, there's just always more to explore. And I, I kind of view. I, I would say another through line, in addition to kind of like being a midwife to innovation, is also just like I want to like delight in the kind of weirdness and wonder of the world that is out there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, and if, and if part of that leads me to kind of getting, getting to name an asteroid, uh, all the better. It's, 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 it's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, this was, uh, this was a fantastic conversation, Sam. Thanks for joining today. Uh, I think we covered a I lot of different things and hopefully everyone else will enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed asking you questions and talking to you. Is there anything, uh, anything at the end here that you wanted to add that maybe I didn't ask about, or maybe if people want to connect to you, I know you said you're not big on social media, but if people want to connect to you, how they might be able to do that. Uh, sure. Yeah. I guess if you can, and if you want to connect, I feel free to, just, I, so my website is arbusman.net. And so, um, and you can feel free to reach out to me directly through there. Um, also if you want to subscribe to my approximately monthly newsletter, um, if you go to, or even there's a link at arbusman.net, but you can also go to arbusman.substack.com. Uh, and yeah, I love being in contact with people and having people share interesting and novel things with me. Um, yeah, the, the world is exciting and glad we all get to be in it together. 